Welcome to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020 by day and your host by night. Our guest this week is Jag Dugal, Chief Product Officer at Newbank. We cover everything from first principles thinking to Jag's previous life as the status quo. You'll see. We had fun. And I hope you do too listening. This episode is brought to you by FS Vector, the firm for innovative financial services. And without further ado, here's Jag. Jag, welcome to FinTech Family Hour, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Great. Well, it's good to have you. And as we were just kind of covering before we click that record button and talking about subject matter, we're going to chase that squirrel all the way back to your childhood. Where are you from? Tell me about kind of like your life growing up, the, the formative days. Sure. I grew up in the Caribbean, actually. I was born and grew up through university, through college in Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago. And I'm basically an island boy from, you know, the middle class of of Trinidad. I like to joke, I grew up playing, you know, soccer, football and cricket on the beach. And then I showed up, I showed up in Connecticut for college. And that was very, very different. That's a shift. I mean, Connecticut of all places too. So, I mean, had you been to the U.S. a good amount before? Like, had you kind of been exposed to any of it or was it just, was it really that much of a jump into the, from, from the Caribbean to the waspy, waspy world? I, I had, you know, spent a lot of vacation time, et cetera, in various parts of the U.S., but never lived, never lived. So it was the biggest thing I had to realize was that, you know, Sun and warmth are no longer equivalent. And once I figured that out by early October of my freshman year, I was able to start to adjust. There you go. There you go. So what did what did you study and how is is the, any of what you studied actually man- manifesting itself with knowledge that you have today? You know, I, I studied engineering and uh, that's because, you know, my parents are Indian and that's required if you aren't if you aren't going to become a doctor. So uh, fair enough. <laughs> So I studied engineering. I wasn't very good at it, if I'm being honest. But I persevered through four years, uh, having almost switched majors a couple different times. But I'm glad I did in the sense that once I got into product management, having having the depth of of, of engineering background as as conceptual theoretical as it was from college and not ever having you know worked in the discipline still gave me a lot of empathy for the people who actually build the things that we that we ship and some understanding of the first principles at least of of how to think about it so in the end that suffering through a major where i was not particularly excelling was very valuable in the end you think there's a corollary there in terms of like traits of successful product managers like to be a great product manager do you have to not be a great developer is that like a there like some, some truth there in terms of, or at least be like empathetic to it, but not maybe be a, you know, a 10 Xer. It's a good question. I think, I think there is a class, a segment of product managers who probably fit that profile. I'm certainly one of those. There's a segment of product managers who are just incredibly naturally empathetic and therefore empathetic with customers, which sometimes overlaps with the group that's not particularly technically savvy, but sometimes doesn't. And then there's a set of product managers 
who are brilliant at their job and who are, you know, can code with the best of them, or at least at one point in their career could code with the best of them. And since I couldn't be that, I had no choice but to be the other thing. So my, in some ways, and this is more me backing into it, my superpower is I'm not particularly technical, technically gifted, which means I'm pretty much in the shoes of our average customer. And so things that are at all complex in the, in the interaction trip me up. And so I can find them <laughs> in a way that someone who's very technically savvy may not, may not, may just take for granted. So I've turned that, that weakness into, into my superpower and, and run with it. So that's, that's where I've left it. Is there anything in your youth or, I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine studying engineering leads you to be an amazing question asker, but in a lot of the, a lot of my research and just kind of going back and listening to things Jag has said before, it seems like a big portion of your competitive advantage is like the questions you ask and also kind of what you said in terms of going back to first principles. I'm curious where that trait comes from, because I find that to be unique. Huh. Thank you for that. I, I, I don't know if it's unique and I don't know where it might really come from. I will share with you a theory, which might be completely wrong, but those are my favorite. I, uh, I, I, I grew up, as I said, in the Caribbean, I went to a Catholic school for 12 years or two Catholic schools, I guess. And I did a lot of fairly advanced math and calculus in high school, which meant I did a lot of mathematical proofs in high school. And in terms of not so much the question asking, but the first principles, I have a terrible memory, like a really terrible memory. I've had a terrible memory my entire life. My younger brother would beat me at, you know, the card game memory when biologists would tell you it shouldn't be possible for, you know, a five-year-old to be beating an eight-year-old. So I've, I've always had a terrible memory. I've always had, well, not always, but I, I had in high school a lot of practice in in going, in starting at the first principle and reasoning my way through to solve the problem because I had no ability to remember any of the, <laughs> the way it should have gone. And perhaps that's the combination that got me to the point where I have to, it's a survival skill for me. I have to go to first principles because I can't remember <laughs> We have a couple of executives at Newbank who have incredible memories. Christina, one of our co-founders, for example, has an incredible memory. So she'll tell me about a meeting we had four months ago and we said X and then I said Y and then she said Z and I'm like, I have no recollection of any of this. All I know is on a first principle, I think I would have said this two months ago because this is what I think now. And so we end up complimenting each other well because she actually knows what we said and I can kind of reason what we should have said and, and it, it, it plays itself out. So that's a theory, but consider it no more than that. Well, I mean, I feel like you just threw me a softball in terms of like how much of product management is just a theory, right? Like how much of your every single day is just like a, a, a B test and then not getting too attached to A or B and then going with the, you know, actual correct answer that's in the data based on math that I was terrible at, but like, I get what you mean. I also had a terrible memory. So I, I have for, been forced to do the first principles thing too. But it sounds like you just kind of backed into the, that's why product, like that, that's the first principles of product management, right? Is don't get too attached to one idea. Don't fall in love with your thesis, like all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that's, that's critical. That's absolutely critical. That's something you learn. I think that's a very hard thing for any human being to not fall in love with a 
theory or a concept or an idea or that they've that they've developed or a font that they've developed or someone <laughs> on their teams developed. And that was not something I did naturally for many years. That's something you learn when you have ideas that you thought were brilliant that turned out to be terrible. It happens two or three times and you realize, hey, this being attached is not is not working out so well. Batting averages are low. So 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 that's certainly something you learn over time. Being data driven has always been pretty pretty natural but you know frankly you can see any pattern in data that you <laughs> that you want to if you if you squint hard enough and and people often do that how much of this is school of hard knocks and how much of this is like you worked at google for 5 6 years and it's the definition i mean it's the place that people think of is where the best product may, or has been and especially when you were there i think is the place that people thought of as the best PMs are coming out of there. Like this is the place you go to get trained as a PM. Like it's kind of, you know, the place. So have you had to unlearn any of that? Has that all just been only additive? I'm just very curious about how you've grown kind of out of that program since then. Yeah. I mean, the background is I joined Google for a couple of things. I joined Google in a slightly unusual way and I joined Google relatively speaking sort of a bit later in my career. So I joined Google after doing 10 years of, of strategy consulting. I joined because a friend of mine from consulting's company had been acquired by Google. At the time, Google had just, Larry had just instituted a rule that said you needed a computer science degree to be a product manager. I didn't have a computer science degree. I I, I luckily had not changed majors and at least had an engineering degree, which allowed, at least let me interview as an exception. I then was told I have to be really, really code savvy to pass the interview. So I studied for weeks how to write code that I hadn't written in 10 years so I could fake it because it would be no more than faking it. The interview process wasn't really quite that code heavy, but it, it was reasonably technical in parts. I, I I managed to get my way through it. So that that part worked out, but I, I got into Google as a PM, as an exception. Now I take some pride. There are a lot of pretty amazing founders, founders of Pinterest and Groupon, and you can go down a list of a lot of who's who's, who were not able, I mean, Instagram, Kevin was not able to become a PM at Google. It's part of the reason he, he, he started his own company, worked out pretty well. So I think some of the criteria Google used, which was overly technical, actually excluded a lot of great PMs. And I was frankly on the borderline. I think it was the last, the last person who got in without the CS degree requirement. When I got to Google, I also had had a 10-year career in consulting, and I had a lot of habits after 10 years about patterns of work and patterns of thinking that I had to unlearn. The biggest one probably being I was used to think through the problem. You know, one of the famous quotes that my one of my bosses at, at, in consulting used to, used to quote was a quote from a legendary CEO of Coca-Cola. He used to say, you can think through a problem so hard you sweat. And I used to love that quote. And what I learned at Google was launch and iterate, which is a little bit different. It was like, don't think through the problem so hard you sweat, get it 80% done in 10, 15% of the time and get coding and get shipping and then get iterating. And so I had to find that, that balance. So there was a lot of, in my first two to three years at Google, there was a lot of unlearning what I thought was foundational and, and, and iterating and finding, frankly, a, a, a synthesis. There's 
there became in that time also sort of the opposite point of view, which is strategy doesn't matter at all. You just, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall, ship the thing and iterate from there, which I think is even a more dangerous way of thinking about things. So I had to find my way at Google. It was, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but it was, there was not a lot of depth of training. There was a manual. There were some amazing, as you said, world-class PMs I got to learn from and either, you know, through direct mentorship or just observation. That was really an incredible place to learn by doing and by osmosis, but it wasn't formally trained very well. As for example, Facebook these days does a really, you know, a pretty robust job of. And so that was a that was a that was a process of navigating and and learning once i had that template after a few years at google i've iterated it i've deepened it i haven't fundamentally changed it because i think there was a lot of a lot of the key principles were there at google even if they even if they weren't well the even if the signs weren't well marked and you had to sort of find them along the way yourself i'm i'm kind of stuck on how different like that answer was not what I expected to be. I mean, you know, podcasters, I mean, we, we ask questions and we kind of generally have a thought that in the direction that you're going to go, you realigned a misconception that I think I've had, which is that Google did have a B C D like there is no, you know, kind of creativity to it. I mean, there is creativity to it, but you have to learn all of these, you know, 125 rules first, and then you get to the creativity and it sounds like you're saying like some of the creativity and some of the figuring it out is like actually back to the first principles. Like that is the, the, a little bit of it. And if you have, if you figure out how to swim in that situation, then you can probably figure out how to swim in a, in an actual product development role or a, you know, a PM role. And that's just really interesting. In those days and reasonably early in Google's life, I mean, Google's a very young company. It got very big, very fast. It was still learning. When I, I joined as roughly employee, was shy of 7,000. A year later, there were 20,000 people there. Like it was, it was going, growing like crazy. So a lot of the processes were not super well developed. My orientation was basically, here's the bathroom and here's the HR manual and, and exaggerating <laughs> slightly, but there wasn't a lot of depth of like, here's how to be a product manager. And I came in as a product manager without a CS degree and without ever having been a product manager. So I was, I was sort of a different animal. So there were, and at one level, there were some foundational things. We use data. We, we have very specific ways of analyzing data, but there was a lot of learning by doing, figure it out as you go along, learn from the person next to you and, and make it go. And I also joined not in the core of the business. It wasn't search. It wasn't core ads. It was, this offbeat idea that we were going to, you know, Googleize the ad experience for TV, radio, and newspapers offline, which none of which worked in the end, all of which pivoted into YouTube. But, but I was doing a different thing from a different background with a different educational, you know, sort of path. So it, it, a lot of it was unique to me. I had to figure it out <laughs> because I couldn't understand the rule book. I, I didn't have the background to just off the, off the cuff. So, it, okay. So that makes sense. Then you go Quancast, jump shot. I think from there, like the most interesting piece that you, you did kind of cover this in your interview with Harry, which I will put in the show notes just because I don't want to recover all of it. And I think there's some really good stuff in there that people should go listen to. David got you to move to Brazil, which 
from, you know, your youth, you coming from the Caribbean, like, you you know, you've been moving around through life. But I would imagine at a certain point, one likes to maybe set down some roots. And again, like I said, you did cover this a little bit, but I, I just keep coming back to it of like, that is a gigantic fucking shift. And <laughs> what is that like? What, 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 what you have a family, right? I think you said that at the beginning. I do. I do I have a yeah. wife and a daughter. What was that conversation with the wife like? She she's an amazing woman. First of all, it was a series of conversations over several months. It started but, out like yeah. This, the, point that out first, fair. <laughs> which, which, the, the start, uh, uh, you know, and it started out with this will never happen, so not, no need to worry. I mean, the, it started with it started with a conversation with David I'd never met before, and I, I from that very first conversation over a Zoom like this that I really I just really liked the guy and I really liked the way he thought and I really liked the ambition of what Newbank was doing and I was looking for something like that. There were the intellectual and almost spiritual pieces that really drew me, you know, going back to my home region, broadly speaking, serving the bottom half of the global economic pyramid. You know, when you're doing ads, that's not, you're serving the top billion, best case. And then there was the, like you said, we had a very comfortable life here in, you know, Marin County. And it's like moved to Sao Paulo. I had done in my consulting careers about eight months of a project in, in Sao Paulo. So I, it wasn't completely out of the blue, but I hadn't been back. The, the conversation was basically, should we do some kind of expat adventure somewhere? The idea would be more like Barcelona or London than Sao Paulo per se, but this is what came up. And I had a conversation after speaking to David with, with Doug Leone, who's our you know, chairman of the board. And Doug basically told me, you got to go look at this thing because this is an amazing, I know you, Sao Paulo, FinTech, what does this have anything to do with you? And he said, look, this is one of the most amazing companies in the portfolio. You should check it out. And then the personal side of the conversation came into it and it was, Let's see if we can do an adventure. My wife's dad was an admiral in the Indian Navy. So she moved around every two years. We had both moved to the US and for college and grad school. So um, with all of that context, we did a very crazy thing. And three months later, COVID started and made everything even crazier. So there's no rational explanation for how that decision got made. So then you lived through COVID in Brazil and also joined at a time i mean that was a big growth spurt for newbank right like going through the through the pandemic was a moment of it was a forcing function i'm sure in a lot of ways for digital banking in in brazil so tell us that story what the hell was that like from culture shock through covid shock through gigantic growth shock i mean that's a lot at once well, one first part of so i actually ended up moving back here to california i took oh, one okay. of the last two or three flights out of Sao Paulo into the U.S. Oh, for the world shut down. Jag. That's wild, my wife man. insisted. My wife's like, you got to get out of there now. And I was like, oh, maybe next week. She's like, now. Good, because I landed the day that California locked down. Like six hours after I landed, Governor Newsom locked down the state. Then came the part, by the way, all my clothes were in Sao Paulo still because I thought this whole thing would be three weeks. So I lived, I lived 2020 with two pairs of jeans and four shirts and all of my, all of my stuff in Sao Paulo in suitcases. So that was that. 
from a business perspective, having recently joined and decided to pivot my career into financial services in the middle of what we thought was about to be a COVID-triggered massive financial crisis, I had some second thoughts about that I made the right call here. We spent literally, um, not, not almost, daily calls for about, I can't remember now, but probably close to six weeks, just like, where are the reserves? What are the flow of money? Is there going to be a run? Et cetera, et cetera. And gradually, through very rapid decision-making cycles, began to realize this was as much, and in fact, it turned out to be more opportunity than threat. But it was not obvious at the start. We very luckily had members of our board who were on Chinese and Asian companies. So the lockdowns there were two months ahead of time. So we actually, they gave us a window into the future. Here's what's going to happen in four weeks. Here's what's going to happen in six weeks. Here's what's going to happen in eight weeks, which was a massive advantage for, for the company and for us as we were making some of those decisions. Can I pause right there real quick? Is there is there a universal learning there or something like i feel like there's this thing that i've kind of seen since the pandemic that is and maybe it's just that i'm like maturing as a human or like actually paying attention to the world because i slowed down because of the pandemic or something but it seems like there is some sort of takeaway from that like just an universal kind of thing of I don't know exactly what it is. Anyway, I'm just really, really stuck on that specific piece. And my brain has had a really long day and I kind of forgot what direction I was going, but that like really fucking grabbed me. And now you see my memory issues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are we going to get through this together? Exactly. Dude, exactly. I'm like, oh shit. What were you just, you just struck on something that felt like a universal gigantic thing. And then my brain completely lost it. This is probably not at all what you had in mind, but there, there are two thoughts just given what you that triggered in my mind as you say that. I, I'd say two things. One is there are certain behaviors that are pretty universal that we don't realize that, that are the same in China or India or Brazil or Mexico, or whatever. The pandemic obviously triggered a series of, you know, fear, lockdown. Oh, I need to get back to some semblance of real, daily life. Oh, I need to, you know, my financial life needs to happen regardless of not being able to get out of the house, all of these things that made some of the pattern in mundane, you know, seemingly mundane things like how bank account balances would go, like how people would react to traditional banks versus digital banks, which were still pretty new three, four years ago, to how people would have needs for credit, that having that insight turned out to be really valuable. The other perhaps a little bit more boring MBA type of thing, I would say, which I hadn't really appreciated to the certainly to the full extent until Newbank. David has done a consistently brilliant job, literally from day one of the company, in getting a board and a set of investors who are world-class, beyond world-class for every stage of the company. Starting with QED and Nigel Morris and Doug Leone and Sequoia from the very, very, you know, basically first day, we have had, and even as it's evolved, continue to have an incredible set of advisors from an incredibly broad array of contexts and backgrounds that I, I never appreciated until Newbank just how valuable that could be. And it, but and that was a moment there have been actually many even before and certainly since where that is just always, that's consistently panned out. Now let's take just a moment to talk about our exclusive sponsor and the team that makes this all possible, FS Vector. 
FS Vector is the firm for innovative financial services. That means a lot of things, but most of all, what it means right now is a path to clarity. The policy and regulatory landscape hasn't felt this unclear in a long time. From banking to cryptocurrency and everything in between, uncertainty is rampant. We know there's no crystal ball, but the closest thing we have can be good advisors. Not consultants, as we talked about in the previous episode, but advisors. Navigating uncertainty isn't a job for a noob. That's why FS Spectre has experienced advisors from successful founders to ex-regulators to experts in really all fields. Reason-based, justifiable decision-making that you can clearly <clears throat> show your work to regulators and auditors. It's never been so important to show your work. I wouldn't have started recommending FS Vector to founder friends before they were a sponsor if I really didn't trust their expertise. And I do. And that's why they're a sponsor. If I was building something new right now, I'd be working with FS Vector. I recommend all my friends to them. As I said, if you're building something new, evolving something that exists, or not sure about how to handle a unique situation in the world of financial services, FS Vector can help. Go to fsvector.com and tell them Zach sent you. Yeah. So as as you were talking, I remember what the fuck I was trying to say. And it is relating to that. So I think that there's this one is that global piece, right? But two is I think this idea of paying attention to other geographies and learning from them, right? Is a wildly basic concept. Like Tom's shoes wouldn't be Tom's shoes had Tom not gone to, I don't even remember where he went, but he went somewhere and, you know, figured that out. Right. And I I remember reading that book when I was like sophomore or something like that in college, I was studying entrepreneurship and realizing that you couldn't study fucking entrepreneurship in a classroom and all of that (laughs) kind of stuff. Right. But I was thinking about it and I was like, how do like, what is the technology or financial version of this? Right. Because at that point I was like, oh, I'm going to go start acorns. And I like wrote a business plan for acorns, but I didn't know one needed to develop the software to build a helpful and successful business. And I think about, you know, you all with, you know, kind of being able to ride this wave of picks. I think about, you know, a lot of the kind of mobile first payment mechanisms that exist in, you know, in India or across the rest of the world. And, I think in a lot of ways, the United States is damn good at being convinced that we are so far ahead and we're so far behind and we pay zero attention to those that actually are ahead of us because we have this nationalism thing or whatever it is. And I guess that's kind of what I was what I was kind of trying to pull on the thread of is like, is there a universal learning of just if it is a global perspective or it is like just, you know, kind of paying attention to the geographies that are a year or a few months ahead of you or whatever it is, it just seems like there's something there. And I would think something there, especially in fintech or not. I I feel like it's either really there or it's really not. And I can't decide. Yeah, I think it's absolutely there. And, and, and you and I touched a little bit on this before, Zach. I when I joined Newbank, I wish I could say I had this perfect foresight and this was all part of the plan and I understood this. It, it evolved gradually, starting during the interview process. Our technical phone co-founder at Newbank, Ed, and I talked about this during when I interviewed with him. David and I then spoke about it. Ed had this hypothesis, this is at least four years ago now, that the future of financial services and the innovation wouldn't come from you know the places you would expect, New York or London or San Francisco, places like that. 
but it would come from somewhere in the global south. And obviously his idea was, why not Brazil and why not Newbank? I found that intriguing at the time. I had no idea whether to believe it or not. I had every reason to be skeptical, obviously. He was trying to tell me that Newbank was a great place, which which I ultimately came to agree with him on. But but I was intrigued by that concept. And as I, I've thought about it a lot since that time, it was almost exactly four years ago today. It was sometime in September 2019 that I was interviewing. And, you know, if you study sort of, and I've studied a lot of development economics in my life for, for various reasons. If you study that stuff, there is reason Toyota emerged when it emerged and how it emerged and where it emerged, most importantly. The Japanese post-war audience badly needed a small car because they couldn't afford a big car. They didn't have big, when, when Toyota first came to the US in the early 60s, the cars were so underpowered, they couldn't really take the on-ramps onto the highway system that you know Eisenhower had just built. And, but the cars they built were badly needed in Japan. And it wasn't just Toyota. There were a dozen companies competing like so fiercely. And that's why the Japanese auto industry became the world's leading auto industry. What Walmart did in the, in the early sixties, inventing something, you know, there's a famous chart I used to use 20 years ago with it in my consulting firm where you could literally map the concentric circles of Walmart stores opening in starting in Northern Arkansas. And, and we would like paint the years, 1971, 1975, 1979, 1983, 1987. And we would ask the question, we would just paint Chicago. And we'd say, when should Sears have woken up that their lunch was going to get eaten? And it literally doesn't happen until 1991, when there are articles about Sears may, might go bankrupt. And it's literally the moment between 1987, I think it was, and 1991, Walmart explodes from the regional Missouri, Arkansas, regional Midwest out and starts hitting everywhere. And so that's my theory about financial services. It's going to come out of places like Delhi and, and Mumbai and Lagos and Jakarta and Mexico City and Sao Paulo and Rio and, and, and Bogota and places like that. Because the fundamental customer need, survival depends on managing your money well. And so at Newbank, there are probably two dozen fintechs that are like serious. There are incumbents that are amongst the most profitable anywhere in the world. This is an incredibly competitive market we, we deal with on all sides and in all ways. And if we aren't great, someone will eat our lunch tomorrow. Like it won't take very long. And if we're not great, our customers will find someone else who is great. That was the opportunity we took advantage of a decade ago. And that's the opportunity, that's the threat if we don't keep up now. So I think places like Brazil and India, I don't think UPI in India or PIX in Brazil is an accident. I think it is driven by two things, a uh, fundamental or three things. Like, a deep customer need. Second is a fiercely competitive ecosystem. And third, and this is might explain why particularly Brazil and India, the central bank and the regulator in these two markets are incredibly forward thinking. And we're lucky in that. And so I think places like the US, you know, where I where I live still, are so far behind its 
quite alarming, actually, from a from a fintech and an innovation perspective. It's actually a really fucking fascinating dynamic that I've not thought about is that the regulators in a lot of these geographies are actually more forward thinking than the private market in a lot of ways. I know you just literally said that out loud, but I need to like restate it in my own words sort of thing and hang on to it for a second. Because of course, how does UPI or PICS come to be, right? And how does how does Fed now kind of just not happen and not happen and not happen and not happen? And then suddenly the private market's like, okay, fucking hey, we'll just do it ourselves. And then all of a sudden Fed now gets shipped, right? And like it's it's a pretty interesting situation there. So that's it's actually really interesting to think about. And I think, I mean, I think in the US we're kind of this self-actualization level of you know, like a Maslow's hierarchy of fintech or something like that. We're at like the self-actualization <laughs> level, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I was making a joke about when in, in college, right? But I started at a robo advisor and I was like, all that ever matters is retirement savings. Why is nobody saving in their 401k, right? And then I went and worked at a bank and I was like, oh my God, nobody's got any savings in their savings account or their checking account. Like, how is the world functioning? And then I went and worked in banking as a service slash embedded finance. And it kind of got me into this world where like, oh, shit, like nobody's going to do this because they have debt. So, of course, like, of course, that's you're just moving through the steps. Right. And then you realize that, like, so much of it just comes down to like <laughs> actual income or, you know, the the ability to like rub two pennies together and manage your finances. And I, to me, that's like it's such a more interesting and inspiring problem to solve, like looking at my mom and thinking about how do i make sure that you know the the financial industry in the us is in a place where she is able to retire in a you know respectable way in a positive way and like is taken care of all the way through right like that's that matters a lot to me because it's my mom but the concept of like a few hundred million people pulling out of poverty because you created something like that's fucking exciting like no wonder you get out of bed every morning just ready to go like that's just i get it yeah that's what got david to go do this crazy thing a colombian moves to brazil doesn't speak the language to go start take on you know five of the most profitable banks in the world it's it's bonkers but but you get it right you change the trajectory of a continent which is which is the way you know david david thinks about and the way the rest of us have you know that's the mission we've all signed up for yeah. And I mean, it's something that you're already doing. I mean, I think, you know, I, I also think that we as a American fintech group get awfully focused up here. And I, I think that probably a lot of people listening think that new banks only in Brazil. You know, I think that's a, a, a perception that a lot of Americans have. So I guess the question is, or not the question, but the, the ask, correct that perception. You guys have expanded outside of Brazil. Like there's, you know, large and lofty goals that you all have. I'm curious how much of them you can share and how much the new bag brand maybe eventually expands even outside of LATAM and outside of kind of, you know, the areas that you kind of started in. Yeah. You know, we, we have since 2020 and, and then 2021 expanded into Mexico and Colombia. Those are still relatively early days for us in those markets, but, but we have been there for a while and things are, are, are going very well. The key question that people had back in two, three years ago was, is there something peculiar about Brazil that has allowed Newbank to do what it does? And there, there are certain technical elements there, but our fundamental belief was that the underlying human need and human pains 
existed not just in Brazil, but in some in in many ways actually more so in Mexico and and Colombia and other parts of LATAM. So we've started in those additional two markets. We operate in all three. We are we've just launched, for example, our bank account product in Mexico. So product number two in Mexico just launched a couple of months ago, very, very, very early days. And that, you know, that expansion of the product suite from what we've got in Brazil, which it's still expanding quite quickly there, but then taking all of that stuff and making sure it's available in all the countries we operate is again, as, as David likes to say, it's the first minute of the first half of the game. We're just getting going. And then if you zoom out and you take a, you know, a decade long perspective, we're going to ask ourselves, you know, where else can we make the impact that, that we're out to make? And if, if Brazil and Mexico and Colombia really is the template of the future, where can that template be applied? So those are questions we ask ourselves, but they are kind of right now at that level. And at that level of conceptual, you know, granularity, we have so much to do in Brazil, forget even about Mexico and Colombia, like our hands are full. And one thing about our corporate strategy, taking it down a level is, is we are about depth. We are about primary financial relationship with our customers something like 60% of our of our customer active customer base we are the primary relationship for in Brazil and we expect similar trends ultimately over time in Mexico and Colombia so we are we're in the very early days and we don't enter a country to be an inch deep we are we plan to go uh, a mile deep and so we're going to be very very thoughtful and very very careful one of the things i was very impressed when i was first interviewing with newbank and I remember asking both David and Doug about it was, where did the discipline come from to stay in one product credit card in one country, Brazil, for first, what, six years or so of the company? That astounded me. Because in Silicon Valley, we would have done 11, 14, 17 products in that much time, most of which would have been distraction from the core thing we needed to establish. And so that's, that's the new bank way. We're going to be very careful, thoughtful, stepwise. We're just getting going. We got three countries in our arms full for right now. So I'm curious, especially so thinking about that expansion, how much how much of it is reorganizing the financial stack and how much of it is actually like first principles redesign, right? Like how much fun do you get to have in terms of like sitting behind somebody or, you know, going back like and just tearing the product to nothing and building it back up versus, all right, here we talk to the Brazilian central bank here. We talk to the Mexican central bank, but like, I just, I only, I like, I'm just playing with one code base or, you know, I'm just playing with like one kind of suite of designs. How does that work? Yeah. I, I, a couple of ways to think about that. We try very hard at new bank and we double down and double down and double down again. And then we forget the lessons learned and we have to go re relearn it sometimes, but generally we're human and, and, and we're subject to all of those, all of those issues, but we try to go to first principles always. One of our, one of the real, one of the core reasons that I was so excited about new bank, even before I joined the company has five values. The first one, which David nails into us weekly, we want our customers to love us fanatically. 
And we've even had internal discussions at various points about that word fanatically is an interesting word choice because it's kind of odd and even in Portuguese or in Spanish, it's a, it's a, it, it conveys a certain, uh, a certain intensity that is not typical, but that is foundational to New Bank. That is the starting point. And so we start, whether the customer in any given case is Colombian, Mexican, Brazilian, or all three, what changes the game? What is fundamentally different? What will make them love us fanatically? There are regulatory constraints. There are technical constraints. We may not start all the way to the full vision, but that's, that's where our thinking always starts. We've done that many times in Brazil. We're trying to do that in Mexico and Colombia and in some case, with some success. We try to be very clear in our mind about who the customer is, even within the country, and who are we really, you know, what we call our bullseye customer, who are we really designing for and building for. At the same time, and, and this is a realization and a learning, I would say, that, that has come over the last, I don't know, about 18 months, we think that a lot of the fundamental needs in all three countries, at least the three that we operate in, are, are very similar. And so we can start to think like a Google or a Facebook or a Netflix and build for at least the regional audience because the fundamental underlying needs are the same. But we don't take that for granted. What we are not doing is, this is what worked in Brazil. Let's just you know rip and ship into Mexico or Colombia. We want to be way more thoughtful about that. But we do think the underlying needs are, in, are, are, are quite similar in many, many cases. Not all cases, but in many cases. And so... There is that creativity. And in fact, I think over the next three to four years, we will find innovations in Mexico and Colombia. We've had a couple already, but we'll have more of them where the innovations actually don't go from Brazil out. They go from Mexico, Colombia back into, into Brazil and in all directions. So, so that's, that's how we try to balance the, the regional versus global, the first principles versus, you know, the constraints that, that, that are there for any product. How do you keep your eyes open for those kind of opportunities, right? Like as you were kind of just alluding to the, maybe it goes from Mexico out or, you know, vice versa. How do you not get so obsessed with like the pixel perfect, you know, manifestation of a checking account in Mexico and you actually have your eyes open enough to think about checking is not actually the way, you know, it's like not the way the future is going to work or whatever it is. Like, how do you stay aware of that? How do you stay kind of open-minded? imperfectly is the most accurate answer. Thank you for an honest answer, Jack. That was I, nobody <laughs> else. I, I have a, I've, this is, this is probably going to be episode either 99 or 101. And most people would not have said that, that honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that is, that is the closest thing to the truth that I could come up with. Look, there are a couple of things that, 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 that are, that I'll, I'll build and be maybe less modest as I build on it. There are a few things that help us a lot. One, I, I mentioned one of our values. One of the other values we have, five founding values that, that, that are real. That the, the, the founding values at Newbank are more real than any other place I've ever worked at. They're not like something on a plaque on a wall. They, they, we live them. We live them in meetings. We live them when we're making hard decisions and trade-offs. Is that because um, of David? Like why, why is that? Is he, he just bangs that home? And, and David, Chris, Ed, the founders, they 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 made them real. They infused, they breathed life into them 
at the beginning and, and, and since. And one of the other ones we have, which is a very uncomfortable one, is we challenge the status quo. And one of the things David does, he, David does this culture meeting with every crop of new hires, I think every month. And he, 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 he walks, he doesn't talk about, I mean, he talks a little bit, but he doesn't dwell on the strategy or, or things like that. He focuses on the key cultural touchstones. And one of the things that, I, that you know, when I first joined, it was super interesting, super easy for me to challenge the status quo. I had no vested interest in what had come before. And so I challenged status quo left, right, and center. And I was like happily going about doing that. And at some point over the last year or two, dude, I am the status quo. I've become the status quo. Of you. <laughs> I'm getting you a and, t-shirt. And you a these, t-shirt says, I am the status quo. <laughs> and, and these whippersnappers are coming into the company from, you know, the U.S. or Argentina or Colombia or Mexico or Brazil or wherever we've hired them. And they're asking these impertinent questions about the status quo that I built. And I'm very proud of that we built picks or, or, you know, we built, you know, an innovative life insurance product or, you know, you name it. And, and these people are asking these, these annoying, impertinent questions and David and Chris and Ed and our founders and, and others as well are very good at being open to those challenges. And, and, and sometimes they sting and sometimes they're wrong, but having that foundational in the culture, in the DNA is very, very helpful. And the other part that's helpful is, you know, when you have a visionary as a founder, it's very helpful. David is always living that challenge, the status quo. And sometimes he's challenging his own status quo from literally four days earlier. And, and that can be frustrating at times. He's like, dude, we built this plan around this idea that we had. And he's like, yeah, but I've thought about it. And he's very, very open. And that sets a cultural tone all the way through, you know, 8,000 new bankers where we're asking these impertinent questions and we are not wedded to our position that, you know, we have to win the argument from even four, three, four, five days ago, certainly three, four, five years ago, never. So that helps. And again, it goes back to the culture that's been infused that underlies the vision, that underlies the strategy, that then underlies the execution. You know, there's a saying in, in Silicon Valley, you well know that a, a former uh, HR head who was one a colleague of mine used to tell me, and I used to, I used to dismiss it, you know, you know, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I've got to go back. Her name was, her name was Sandra. I've got to go back and tell her one day that she was absolutely right. I was a strategy guy, right? So I was like, no, 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 no. Strategy is an important thing. But I had spent 10 years as a strategy consultant. Culture really does eat strategy for breakfast because the strategy has to change because the environment is always changing. And I've seen that really in a, as, a in a, as a living thing in the way Newbank's culture and, and really distill down to these five founding cultural values and how it infuses our decision-making. Again, imperfectly, we don't always get it right. We sometimes violate a rule. We sometimes are, you know, <laughs> fallible and human and, and attached and all of these things. But, but I think that is really key to what the company's been able to do. That's, it's always interesting to hear these, these stories because you've really, I mean, you know, outside of the podcast done plenty of these interviews that you know are not numbered and you hear a lot about founders putting 
putting their values into the company, right? And I think a lot of the time I find that to be utter bullshit. But if it's five <laughs> or less, and if throughout the organization, I actually hear people parroting it and saying it in a moment when decisions are being made, then I actually believe it. And the fact like it's wild to me how much it is about that five, right? Because you have terrible memory. That's where we started, right? And it, you have it not fine. had it. No, you've had no issue remembering those throughout this whole conversation. And like they are like imprinted on you almost, it seems like to the point where like if you left Newbank, I don't think that you would be able to go join a company that didn't want the customer or the user to be fanatically, you know, with you kind of thing. Like, I, I, I don't see you going backwards on that. You know, it seems like that's just kind of the way that you're going to think going forward. That's fucking cool, man. That's that's a awesome like evolution and journey and i think like as i was thinking about what you were saying earlier of just like sticking on one product for six years sticking on the credit card for six years it it's just absolutely wild to me that nigel morris was actually one of your first investors like it's just such a wild concept to think about the fact that the founder of capital one is is I mean, this and this is not a new thought. Like everyone in the world has had this thought. Yes, you are already finishing the sentence, listener. But manifesting like this next version of that in Latam and in the world is just so cool and inspiring. And I don't know. I just I hope that more people in fintech get out of the bed every day to help that kind of lower half of the world, not the lower half of America, a little bit more. I think it's just wildly inspiring and. Yeah, I just I appreciate your perspective on it a lot. And this has been one of the most inspiring conversations I've had in a while. So I appreciate it. Hey, th- thank you, Zach. I've, re- I've enjoyed it tremendously. It's been it's been a fun, a fun ride in an, in an, in an, uh, with some unusual twists and turns along the way. So I've enjoyed the conversation tremendously. It's what I like to do. We chase squirrels. We turn it into a little bit of a therapy session, but we, we made it through. <laughs> thank you. Jay. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably reaching for your phone to pick your next podcast or switch to music or just call it a day because you can't believe how much valuable information you just took in. But before you pick that next thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and all that jazz. Generally scream from the rafters about how much you love FinTech Family Hour. Thank you again to our sponsor, FS Vector. And until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, your costs low, and I love you all.